0: Ninjas, calling all ninjas! It's time for Lime Ninja Radio. Today Lime Ninja Radio,
1: learning how to sleep again and getting off of these medications, which is um, is uh, uh, you know they call it
0: benzodiazepine hell, and it is uh, it it's terrible. This podcast is sponsored by the Lime Ninja Symptom Tracker. I'm so excited to tell you about our new Lyme Ninja Symptom Tracker. One of the things I hear over and over again, whether it's talking to a patient in my office or consulting over the phone with a client, is just how difficult it is to keep track of progress on their Lyme journey. Recording symptoms daily or even weekly gives them too many data points. There are so many ups and downs, twists and turns, that at some point they get lost and confused. The Lyme Ninja Symptom Tracker takes all the guesswork out of tracking symptoms with a simple monthly questionnaire. Once a month is the perfect interval to see if that new supplement or protocol is working. Right now, when you take the Symptom Tracker questionnaire, we give you a simple composite score for the month. But we have big plans and the data you enter will not be lost as we roll out new features. Best of all, it's free. Just head on over to LimeNinjaradio.com slash tracker and sign up. That's LimeNinjaRadio.com slash tracker. You'll be glad you did. Join us every Thursday on iTunes for the latest episode of Lime Ninja Radio. Hello. I'm your host and acupuncturist, McKay Rippey, and this is episode number 187 with the author of Unlocking Lyme, Dr. Bill Rawls. Also, I'd like to let you know that Aurora is back in the country. Just got a text message from her. She landed in San Francisco, and she'll be back with us on the next episode. Hooray! In this episode, you're going to learn why Dr. Rawls wants you to be your own herbalist, and why taking sleep aids like Ambien can wreck your sleep forever, and what he has learned about Lyme disease by speaking with people all over the U.S. As you all know, Lyme disease is an international problem, and each week we have listeners join us from all over the world. This past week, we had listeners from Slovenia to Spain and from Cambodia to Canada. Also, a big thank you to all you longtime Lyme ninjas, Aurora and I really appreciate you listening, and we'd like to welcome all the new listeners out there. Welcome to Lime Ninja Radio. We are glad you tuned in. And speaking of tuning in, this week, our top 10 tuning cities are at number 10, San Jose, California, number nine, Portland, Oregon, number eight, Houston, Texas, number seven, San Francisco, California, number six, Duncan, Canada. Number five, Albuquerque, New Mexico. Number four, Los Angeles, California. Number three, Cleveland, Ohio. Number two, Arlington, Virginia. And number one this week is Mukilteo, Washington. I hope I said that right. If you like what we're doing here at Lime Ninja Radio, share this interview with a friend. And if you really like what we're doing, head on over to iTunes and leave us a review. And if you really, really, really like what we're doing, consider becoming a Lime Ninja Patron. Just head on over to our new homepage at LimeNinjaRadio.com and look for the Patreon link. Here's a little background information on today's guest, Dr. Bill Rawls. Dr. Bill Rawls graduated from Bowman Gray School of Medicine at Wake Forest University in 1985, and he holds his medical license in North Carolina. Dr. Rawls has written extensively on health topics, including Lyme disease, fibromyalgia, and chronic immune dysfunction. He's the author of Suffered Long Enough and his new book, Unlocking Lyme. Aside from his writing, Dr. Rawls serves as medical director for Vital Plan, an herbal supplement and wellness company he co founded with his daughter, Braden. Here's our interview with the author of Unlocking Lime, Dr. Bill Rawls. Oh, but one thing, the audio quality on this interview was intermittent. We had some problems with Skype, and then somewhere during the interview, it sounded like somebody was mowing the lawn outside of Dr. Rawls's home or office where he was interviewing and his microphone was struggling between tracking him and tracking the lawnmower. So we did the best we can cleaning it up. And so there will be some parts where it's a little tough to hear. Hang on there. It's worth the effort. Good morning, Dr. Rawls. This is McKay Rippey from Lime Ninja Radio. Good morning. How are you? good to talk to you it's very good to talk to you i was so excited to meet you at the mid-coast main lime conference and listen to your presentation there and i'd like to start off by asking you now that you're out in the world a little bit the lime world and talking to people what are you learning from people
1: um I, th- I think a big part of it is just that everybody's experience is a little bit different and it's um, I still think there's a lot of, uh, there are many misconceptions about what chronic Lyme is just listening to the other speakers. It was, it was pretty broad um, of what people were talking about and different approaches and different perceptions of what the whole thing is. Um so I think we've got a good ways to go to really understand this thing.
0: And is it a lack of a definition, a common agreed-on definition, or are we talking about different things? What do you see there?
1: I think we're coming together more closely. You know that it's uh, if you go back ten years or twenty years, this was an infection with a microbe. Um, now we're recognizing that it's more than just. A microbe, you know, there's always coinfections, but I think it's even broader than that. you know, this idea of the whole microbiome, and that we all carry these opportunists in our microbiome, and you up that, set that balance and disrupt the immune system functions, and you're in trouble. So I see my definition of chronic Lyme is much broader, and it, uh, it, it overlaps with fibromyalgia, chronic fatigue. And fundamentally, I think uh, this same pathway is, you know, we're going to see more and more that these, these types of microbes and microbiome imbalances are associated with most chronic illnesses. Couldn't you encapsulate your
0: definition?
1: To me, chronic Lyme disease is a, a situation where the immune system becomes disrupted chronically. And so, you you know, it may be initiated. Um, I've listened to your story before and you got acutely ill after a tick bite, but a lot of people don't. So my, I just after listening to so many people's cases over so many years, you know, most people don't get ill acutely at the tick bite or even remember a tick bite. The majority of people, it's this perfect storm of other factors, you know, terrible stresses of different varieties. That, that surround the time they became ill. So I think when when the microbes precipitate it, when you get sick after a, a tick-borne infection, it's generally because uh, someone gets more than one microbe. And that even goes back to the original cases of um, of Lyme disease back in Lyme, Connecticut. Uh, there's there's some interesting backstory on that that uh, I read years later that was really, that, that's fascinating.
0: So that then is part of the reason why we see so many different reactions, different symptoms with Lyme disease. Well, somebody will be neurologically impaired and have trouble walking and somebody else, it's chronic fatigue and depression or, or psychological issues and so forth and so on. Is, is that kind of where you're heading with that?
1: Absolutely. You know, I think it boils down to what kind of illness someone has uh, inside chronic Lyme and outside chronic Lyme. It depends on the spectrum of microbes that are present in their microbiome, the type of opportunists uh, that they picked up, or stealth microbes, if you want to call them that, what they picked up through their lifetime, uh, their genetics and what kind of factors surround them um, in their environment that disrupt immune system function. So that, that, that is uh, fairly powerful. Um, and in the future, you know, we may be looking better able to look at that whole spectrum of microbes that are inside a person and how that's affecting their immune system or how their immune system has been disrupted. Uh, which would help us uh, target therapy better uh, rather than just somewhat archaic practice of just throwing whatever we can at whatever microbes uh, might be there.
0: You know, it's interesting. I just uh, got my uh, biome tested, my DNA sequence, my gut biome DNA sequence by a company called Thrive. And it's a fairly inexpensive test that they've got. and it's interesting. so it was kind of going through and digging through and a, a lot of the bacteria that's in there, nobody knows what's going on. And in, in my particular case, there's this one funny bacteria that is very well thriving in my gut. So I go to Google it and essentially there's there's no information. there are no studies. They know that it exists and it's a kind of an infant form of bacteria that was found in Russia. And, and so I, you know, digging deeper and deeper. And the only mention I found was some biohacker out in California mentioned that this, uh, he tests his gut biome all the time. So he's tested his gut biome a hundred times based on travels around the world and different foods and all kinds of things. So he's just fascinated by the whole thing. And he said, yeah, after a trip to Thailand, which I, and in fact, had just done within the past year, he said, this particular bacteria increased significantly, not nearly as high as mine. So, you know, we're, we're in this wild, wild west of incomplete information, uh, incorrect information. And I have to say, with your new book that you have, I have a little Lyme support group out here in central New York, and there are big they are big fans of your book.
1: <laughs> That's good to hear. You know, it, it's, uh, it, it, it's always good to know that that uh, the suffering and misery that you went through and, and tried to turn around to help others actually work. Um, so it's valuable. But but, yeah, I, I think you hit it right on the head that uh, we're 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 in a stage of learning and there is a lot of stuff we don't know but we've come a long way you know it, i i think looking back 30 years when i entered medical school we thought there were about 3 or 4 hundred species of of microbes in the gut and that you only had microbes in the large intestine and your esophagus and maybe your ears and on your skin and and that was about it um so, even as late as ten years ago, you know, I was only hearing about a thousand species of potential microbes in the body, and we were just starting to see that, well, yeah, we do have uh microbes all through the gut, even the small intestine and in the bladder um but it's only been within the past three or four years that we're that the you know the latest uh estimate that I've heard is potential forty thousand different. Microbes in our body, so with better testing, we are able to uh define the microbes there, but what we're not sure what to do about it, but I think as we get better, you know we'll understand more about uh you know microbiome balance and how that affects uh illness and wellness uh, so that's that's a really important place that I think we need to go technologically, but um even then, I'm not sure it's going to radically change the best approach for someone to when they when you know when you think about overcoming these kinds of situations. And why is that? Because we already have these wonderful tools. <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> uh, you know, that, that that work that you don't have to know the details for them to work because nature has already worked these things out. So when you look at that idea of looking at chronic Lyme or fibromyalgia or any of these things as functionally an imbalance in the microbiome and chronic immune dysfunction, that one thing is, is just torquing the other, creating this vicious cycle, um, you know, it, and, and not as much I've, this infection with a microbe that I've got to eradicate you start looking, asking the question, well, how do I restore my immune system and that balance? Uh, so a diet is important, uh, reducing your stress, exercising more, cleaning up your environment. All of those things are functionally important in the process. But herbs, herbs are just, they're, they're there. And it's, it's such a powerful tool that I have found not only remarkable in my own personal life, but so many individuals because the herbs the plants have already figured this out you know they're producing this this really robust spectrum of phytochemicals that do what we want to do they balance the microbiome they 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 enhance and balance the immune system function so uh it 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 so you don't really really necessarily have to know the exact imbalance they're going to bring you back to center, which is just an, an unbelievable, fascinating thing about herbs that, that I've enjoyed so much.
0: Now, let me back up just a little bit. In the beginning of your book, you have this chart where you talk about the virulence of different microbes and you rank lime down toward the bottom of that so that they're less virulent that say Ebola, which is back in the news again. And so what you don't mean seriousness by that. What do you mean by virulence? What is the technical explanation of virulence?
1: All right, virulence, technically the definition of virulence is the propensity, the potential for a microbe to cause disease, all right? But hearing that definition further, you have to ask, what's the mission of the microbe? What does the microbe want? What is it trying to do? And basically, all microbes want a nice, comfortable host where they can reside and change and then uh, use as a springboard to move on other onto other hosts and they do that by vectors that can be airborne particles, sexual contact a variety of, of different ways, and then of course ticks um, and other biting insects. So this is what microbes do so. If you have a microbe that is making someone sick, it's the evidence of a very imbalanced host-microbe relationship, right? So most of the things that humans have been exposed through through time um, are uh, we we know them. Our immune system knows them well, and so it's uh, it's like all of our normal flora. Um, the Human and humanoid species, you know, we've got a relationship with those microbes that dates back millions of years. Um, Ebola virus, we've never seen that thing before, Um, but it has a natural host that it resides. They think it's a very rare spider in Africa. And this spider. Um, you know, in that spider, in that host, it doesn't cause disease. And occasionally, the spider bites a bat, and the bats get sick. And if a kid happens to be playing under the tree, like what happened last time, that it gets into human populations. So it uh, so the immune system has never seen that thing before; it's totally blindsided, um, and the infection is overwhelming. But when you move toward tick borne illnesses, you know, we, we've been exposed to these things before. There's some rare ones out there, uh, like powatin virus, uh, not very common, it's carried by ticks, but we haven't been exposed very much. It can make us really ill. So when you move down that virulence scale, the potential for uh, acute, uh, serious illness is, is lower. But the potential for these things just to kind of hang on in the body is higher. But it was interesting. I was writing an article and I looked back. Um, I was looking back at, at what was killing people in 1900. And uh, it was tuberculosis, pneumonia, and intestinal function, a- infections. Because of antibiotics and vaccines, we do, were not hit with those acute life-threatening things nearly as much as we used to be. Um, But now we're dealing with the, all these chronic microbes that are maybe a little bit more matched, but not matched well enough
0: to uh, reside as normal flora in our body. So let's call them stealth infections because somebody else has already used that term and it's kind of a nice term. So there's this gap between like friendly bacteria in our gut, or at least commensal, something we can live with, versus something virulent like. And yeah, we'll say tuberculosis. Uh, and so there's this space in the middle where we're not quite settled completely with it. We don't have a symbiotic relationship. But it's not enough to really take over, kill us, or create, well, how do I want to say, a, a, a strong reaction, a strong immune response. So we get this, if correct me if I'm, I'm wrong here, we get this long-term, low-level, kind of like getting stuck in Iraq in a war we're just constantly there on this low level conflict that goes on and on and on and on. And that's, I think reading your book, that's kind of what you're saying. That's a lot. What we're dealing with, with chronic Lyme is not so much the toxicity of the bug itself, but it's our response to it. And the depletion of fighting a long-term battle is, is that what you're saying?
1: Yeah, correct. It's in other words, I think as we're testing, gets better and better and better, and we start testing healthy people, mm. we're going to find lots of people that are carrying Borrelia, carrying Mycoplasma, carrying Borrella, carrying Bartonella, all these things that are classically associated with Lyme. Um, but you know, it's it's uh, every everybody's familiar with C. Diff, Clostridium difficile, that terrible microbe that if you take antibiotics, it can uh, ruin your life. Um, but uh, but. It's like, well, where does that come from? Well, it's there, and everybody's got it <laughs> it's uh so we have lots of these borderline pathogens, I call them kind of microbes in the margins, you know <laughs> um, that 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 we tolerate, and as long as our immune system is strong, um for whatever reason it doesn't completely eradicate them or doesn't have the capability, um it just tolerates them as part of our microbiome. Um, But that was another thing that was interesting with the Ebola outbreaks is that uh, the people that survived and were healthy, they're still finding Ebola in their body. So even the Ebola, the immune system, wasn't able to completely (laughs) eradicate it, but it, it learns the microbe well enough to contain it. So if you're in a situation where you get this, this bolus of multiple microbes, and that was the thing back with the original Lyme patients, um, uh, Willie Bergdorfer, the guy, the researcher that got the specimens from Lyme, Connecticut, um, in a, it was uh, there were he found multiple microbes in the specimens and he had to choose, and later in his notes, he made reference to the fact that he also found rickettsia, and he wasn't sure, but what those acute cases that affected the kids might have been rickettsia or a combination of rickettsia and borrelia. So it's so combinations of microbes, but your immune status is so remarkably important. And you look at everyone out there, we're eating artificial food, we're bombarded with artificial toxins, we, we, we drive ourselves to the brink and don't sleep enough, and sit in front of computers all day. Man, are we a setup for these chronic
0: illnesses. We have a lifestyle that diminishes our immune system.
1: Uh, we're living in the age of chronic immune dysfunction. Yeah, no doubt about it.
0: Now, you work a lot with herbs now, and you spoke briefly about them earlier, but can, can we talk about, do you have recommendations for people who are acutely bit? Like, they're bit, they recognize they have a tick, they maybe even get a rash, maybe they don't. Is is there some herb or herb formula that you recommend for people, especially if they're not able to get their hands on antibiotics quickly, or do you even... At that point, still, do you still think early antibiotics are a good idea for short course?
1: It's, um, it's a question that's almost impossible to answer about the antibiotic. No, I, I, I think there is value in antibiotics or potential value in that acute phase where the bacteria is migrating through the bloodstream. You might be able to cut down on uh, just the bacterial count, which I think can be really valuable. But um, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's not something that I think eradicates the microbe by any means. I think that's a, a, a strong misconception. And I've had too many people that took the 10 to 30 days of antibiotics after a tick bite and six months later showed up with symptoms, where I've had plenty of people just take herbs continually. And the nice thing about herbs is you don't disrupt the microbiome. So you can take herbs long time, long term. So I think it is reasonable to take antibiotics, uh, but but more rational to take herbs. Um, I've had plenty of people that have taken just herbs that did not have symptoms, um, and especially people that had had Lyme disease before, you know, that call up and say, well, I've had a sick bite. You know, I don't want to take antibiotics. I've had a bad experience. Uh, will herbs protect me? And you know we and they take herbs and and never uh, experience any symptoms. But the real beauty about herbs is they're broad spectrum, um, and there are a lot of different herbs that are valuable. Um, we uh, for Lyme, some of the classics are andrographis, Japanese knotweed, cat's claw, but there's so many others. And, and you know the, the ones that we're using now and are kind of calling the, uh, the Lyme disease uh, herbs are just the ones that a lot of people have used. So you, know, you have that history of, of thousands upon thousands of people now having success with these things, so, so you, you develop a comfort. But that certainly doesn't mean that there aren't a lot of other herbs out there that are valuable uh, for, for these kinds of conditions
0: and so i mean what what does the person do? Do you look on the internet? do you find a local person? do you think local herbs are better? Do you think some of these exotic things from Africa and uh down south in in central america i mean how how do you approach this?
1: um well, looking back at my history, um I guess i was I had been using herbs often on. But I picked up Stephen Booner's book. Uh, I think a lot of people are familiar with him. He's a prominent herbalist that's written a lot about Lyme disease. And I picked up his first book in 2005 and started using his protocol. And in that book, he had taken herbs that had been used historically for syphilis and other spirochete-like illnesses Mm -hmm. and applied them to Lyme. And voila! You know, people had great experiences, and I, I um, use them. Uh, but also, over the years, i have exper- experimented with many, many other herbs. And in his writing, he's come out with other, uh, many other herbs that have benefit also. So it's um, so again, there's a wide range of herbs. Um, it doesn't really matter where the herb comes from. I found. You know, it's. Um, I consider myself a modern herbalist in that I'm not really uh, uh, confined to a particular tradition. So I use herbs all over the world, and it's. Um, so so and and using multiple herbs together seems to provide overlapping benefit, but um, you have to think about the plant. You know, it it plants are producing. Phytochemicals to protect themselves against a wide range of microbes, and and so the spectrum of microbes that a plant may have to deal with uh, depends on its surrounding environment uh, that that it is uh, it evolved and is growing in. Um, so you do find a different spectrum, but there's there's a lot of overlap. You know, when you look at the chemistry of herbs, you find. Uh, herbs from China that have very similar chemistry to herbs from North America. Uh, so I think there is value in using some tropical herbs, some temperate region herbs, some some uh, Arctic region herbs, because they're, those are different environments. So you get a wider spectrum of coverage, um, which is, is a really cool way to think about uh, the herbal medicine.
0: Now, one of the questions that came up, and when I told my Lyme support group that I was going to interview you, they perked up and had lots of questions and the 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 most important question I thought was that in you recommend rotating herbs, and there's a concept in Chinese medicine that I'm familiar with uh remedy fatigue and so they were asking with with your herbal formulas that you're offering, are you planning on putting together various uh, formulations to, to combat the, the remedy fatigue.
1: Yeah. As far as our company, uh, we will do that. And it's, um, you know, this is a company that I started uh, within my medical practice about eight or nine years ago, uh, just to reach out to people. And because I was really frustrating on finding products that are what, were the level of quality that I wanted, but we've been a small company. I mean, looking back uh, four or five years ago, it was my daughter and I and a designer. Um, but now we've got a staff, uh, you know, I've got a uh, supply chain manager that has just uh, embraced this, this idea of finding the best herbs and the best extracts from around the world. So we're so we're in the process of expanding and meeting those needs. Um, where I'm I'm in I'm having a tincture formula um, made for us right now uh, by a company in California. That it uh, took us took us a while to you know, it, it's just finding that trust factor of, of uh, who who you know is going to deliver the quality that you want. Um, We're going to try a tincture this time. We've been traditionally using uh, caps, encapsulated extracts because they're more potent. But uh, some people like tinctures, and there's some value because you can take them by the drop as well as by the dropper full. So we're coming out with expanded products and and expanded lines. But from the very beginning, my whole idea with, with our program was to... Create this core that people could embrace because the only downside about herbs is just it can be complex with all the different herbs. So create a core and then and then educate people over six months through our, our email series uh, that to, to how how to start thinking about other herbs and how do you make this part of your life so. You know, my whole strategy is making amateur herbalists out of everybody that comes in contact with us uh, such that people try other products. You know, I firmly want people to experiment with other herbs and try things outside of our products and, and really understand how wonderful this is. You know, I've been um, taking herbs now for over 10 years um, re- religiously, and I try new herbs all the time. Um, and it's pretty remarkable. You know, it, it seems like life keeps getting better every year instead of worse, which is the exact opposite of the way it's supposed to be.
0: Now, at this point in your recovery, when you're thinking about taking a new herb, are you looking to support a body system or function? Or are you looking to fix a symptom? Um.
1: Yeah, most of the time, I'm fairly well past any symptoms right now, but I'm, I'm 60 now, you know. <laughs> <I> mean, <laughs> you're, you're still six, young. <laughs> that, that anti-aging thing, and I'm, I'm wanting to get back that 10 years that I missed, you know. Yeah. And uh, so I want to be the best that I am. I you know I'm really particular about my diet. I've worked on my sleep for years. I I uh, am starting to practice Qigong and yoga regularly. I've been doing yoga regularly. I'm starting Qigong, which I think is really a wonderful healing uh, modality. Uh, I, I liken it. To, I know you're an acupuncturist, and to me, it's kind of self acupuncture as far as you know balancing the the energy meridians in your body. Um, uh, but yeah, the herbs I think are. Uh, for me a really important part of an anti-aging program at this point um you know i i look back and and by the time i hit 50 i had a bad right hip that had been aggravating me for many years my knees were shot i had chronic lower back pain my neck was stiff um i was a mess and you know, I'm I'm 60 now. I uh, I never ended up getting a right hip replacement. I have no back pain. My knees are great, and I'm I'm doing the things that I that I was having a hard time doing, you know, 10 years ago. So I think I, I there are other components of it, but herbs I think are a very key part of it.
0: You know, you bring up a very interesting point in this idea of creating. Amateur herbalists. and I love this idea. Essentially, except for a few places on the planet, that's all there were were amateur herbalists. That wisdom was kept mostly in women in the kitchen and grandmothers, and and some with men. But really, China was one of the only places very early on where it became a profession, where you had a, a Chinese medicine practitioner who also then uh, was an herbalist as well. Most of the time that wisdom was just in the kitchen. And if you have, you know, you're feeling this way, uh, grandma would make a soup for you. Um, I, I heard the story of a, a Vietnamese uh, friend of one of my daughters who uh, made a heartbreak soup <laughs> for her at one point. And it, it, so it's, I think we've, we lost it. We turned all control and information and learning over to professionals. And I think this started 150 years ago, probably where, where we we're moving into the scientific age and we needed professionals, but we've really, we've given away all that power and to start to put it back with, with what you're doing. And I, I'm also very curious, you, you know, six months worth of emails. That's a lot of emails. <laughs>
1: you, well, they don't do, get them every,
0: single okay. Day. I was going to uh, be impressed with all that writing you've done. I mean, oh my goodness, that's a whole nother book oh, yeah, right there. About-
1: you know, that was my therapy for years. I mean, I, now I still have a passion for writing and do a lot of writing, but um, it was my therapy. You know, it, 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 it's how you work out your own problems is writing about them. And, and, um, and I realized that just handing people a bunch of bottles of supplements wasn't going to, to do. It wasn't satisfactory. So I created the big email series. Before I wrote Unlocking Lime, just because it you know it takes several years to write a book um, and get it out there, um, that took a whole year of my life just writing that thing down, so I could less less formally put things in emails to give people that information. So the email series has a lot of information that's now on Unlocking Lime, but it uh, so it's it's a it's a little bit redundant. But it's got a lot of other just in, in, informational, inspirational type uh, things that I think are really key for someone's recovery. It's just the this, this constant reminder: yeah, you know, you be need to be thinking about this. You need to be moving forward with your recovery. So it's um, so I think it has a lot of value, and we're getting ready to redo that series and. Um, uh, try to put more video and more audio in it, uh, more specific guidelines. So it's uh, it, it, it's what I do. I mean, it, it's uh, it's just really important, I think. I think it's just a huge component of this whole recovery process for, for really any chronic illness. You know, that's got to be your foundation.
0: Now, you mentioned earlier that you struggled mightily with sleep. And that was one of your, I'm going to say symptoms, uh, one of the main problems that you had. And we all know that if you can't sleep, you're going to really struggle with healing because so much happens while we're in those phases. Now, how did you recover your sleep? Was there something that turned the corner for you or was this more of like a slow recovery and it was an indication that that your health was returning?
1: I came from a generation, this new technology, and we just don't need sleep. And, and that was just the consensus. You know, there were a lot of people out there going, you know, I only need four hours of sleep to get by. And, and I convinced myself that, hey, you know, I'm, I can do this obstetrics and gynecology thing and, and be up all night and do stuff the next day. And, and I would just drive right through it. Um, and I could do that all through my 30s and into my 40s. You know, I would take a 36 hour shift and, and crash for, for eight hours and be right back at it the next day and I would be fine. But there was a period late in my 40s where I, uh, there was a, there was a snafu in the call schedule. We were a, a four person group at that time. And we're were building out to a five-person group, and there was a snafu on the call schedule that I had took every other night call for two weeks. And I got hammered every single night that I was on call, but I couldn't sleep when I wasn't on call. I lost the ability to sleep properly. And that ultimately led a year or so later to me stopping obstetrics and just my, my health collapsing completely. So, you know, I think I had the microbes in my system since I was a child. Um, so it was the sleep deprivation, along with, you know, just general stress, lifestyle stress and bad diet and everything else that just uh, totally trashed my health. Um, so sleep is, uh, is, uh, yeah, it's near and dear to me. Um, I know it from every angle. And at that point being very naive, I went, you know, I, I, I was in bad shape and I, (laughs) I went to my doctor and I said, you know, I need to, I, I need help. I need to be hospitalized now. And I went to, uh, to a uh specialist a sleep specialist and said you know i i checked me into the hospital i i need something and prior to that time i'd been very afraid of any kind of habituating medicines like sleep medicines and and benzodiazepines and i uh uh, and he said, oh, no, I, you know, checking in the hospitals for sleep apnea, you've just got insomnia here, take this, you're going to be fine. So I did. And uh, it was a mistake that I regretted for a very, very long time. Because Why? What once, happened? Once you take your first dose of Ambien or any other sleep medication, uh, you're done. <laughs> you know, it's. um these medications initiate sleep, but they do it artificially. And once you take that first dose and get a great night's sleep, so I was using it only when I was not on call, and I did that uh, for years, but you eventually get to the point where you, the, the sleep medications replace all of your normal neurotransmitters, and they change the receptors in your body so only the sleep medication can work. That's the only thing that will put you to sleep. And once you become habituated to one of these drugs, you will die before you get sleep if you don't take that drug. Um, It's really, really important for people to know that. And I became habituated. Um, You know, this guy who was so cautious that he rarely wrote for uh, any more than 15 Percocet for a post operative patient never gave people any kind of habituations and for medications became habituated out of desperation. Um, so I, uh, that was, uh, like a five-year course that was part of my recovery is, is, is learning how to sleep again and getting off of these medications, which is, um, is, uh, uh, you know, they call it benzodiazepine hell, and uh, it's it's terrible. Um, So now I do a lot of education helping people not make that first choice. And um, we're getting ready to come out with a new sleep program that I've been working on for a good while to help people learn how to restore their sleep without going to something to put them to sleep um which can be really hazardous in in the long term so it's um so that's that's part of my backstory uh is just the sleep thing so yes i'm i'm intimately familiar with
0: sleep you know i'll 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 put a plug for myself there's when this program is ready uh i'm gonna have to interview you about that because i'm looking it up right now so i've uh, got this Lyme tracker, the symptom survey that I've been encouraging people to fill out. And it's based on Dr. Horowitz's work. It's basically a truncated uh, version of his Lyme questionnaire. And the number one thing that comes up is sleep in terms of a symptom. It is brutal. People with Lyme have such disruptive sleep patterns. Uh, and, and I, you know, this is, a, I'm going to go down this rabbit hole. I kind of, when I had a lime flare a year ago, I went down it partway and I have to re- revisit it. There's something about nitric oxide in sleep. And I think there's a big, uh, big overlap there. You know, it may not be a cause, but it's one of those nodes. It's part of the web. And, you know, we think about melatonin and some other pathways there, but nitric oxide has a lot to do with rebound sleep and uh there was some research out there suggesting that well maybe that's one of the issues that we have with the people as they age is we lose that ability to rebound sleep and, and heal essentially after a after some sort of trauma
1: yeah it's um yeah sleep is very complex uh, it's uh you know we know that there are sleep triggers uh circadian rhythm is one and also uh there's there's another chemical called adenosine um that we build up, and those are two independent uh, p- uh processes you know and I like to think of um it as a tide you know when it starts getting dark and it's the end of the day um then you have a a tide of hormones flow into the brain and gradually put you to sleep, and then the next morning that tide flows out. Um, And that's our circadian rhythm that's dictated by the thalamus and the hypothalamus and connection with pineal gland and other areas in the brain. Um, But then the adenosine builds up in our body, and that's what we get our sleep pressure from that pushes us to sleep. And interestingly, caffeine and adrenaline counteract that sleep pressure. So if your brain is on fire and you're producing adrenaline and things are irritated, um, it it causes you to, to increase the adrenaline secretion that blocks the pathways of normal sleep pressure, but also that causes you to produce more cortisol, which is awakening and throws off that tide of hormones that should be surging into your brain um and and uh it it so it messes you up all the way around but um but there's not much doubt, yeah, you need eight hours of sleep a night to to a recover, and uh that is not something that can be bought with medications or even herbs um I think the herbs have value in in that healing process um but you can't rely on them alone to 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 put you to sleep there's really nothing that can put
0: you to sleep i looked it up the more than 700 people have answered this question in terms of uh, disturbed sleep too much too little or early awakening so some disruption in the the sleep pattern right and only seven percent say they have no sleep disturbance and uh, 25% say mild, 31 moderate, and 35%, almost 36% say severe. So this is a major roadblock for recovery. And this goes back, I'm sure our immune system's locked into sleep too. It's, there are different patterns that show up, circadian patterns with our immune system. And for it to self-regulate, we, we need that downtime. We need that dark time.
1: Oh, uh, absolutely. It, you know, it's, it's, uh, we know a lot more about sleep than we have in the past, but there's still a lot to learn. But the, the, the difficult part of sleep is that you, you, you really can't mimic it with anything artificial or even natural. You know, you, it's so complex. Um, this idea that, 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 you know, a pharmaceutical company could in the future develop a drug that would fix insomnia, I now recognize as being absurd. It's just too complex. It's never going to happen. So, so restoring sleep is just this, this very careful stepwise process uh, that has to be done. And it's, it's, it, it's an integral part of the entire healing process. Uh, to get back normal
0: sleep. Dr. Rawls, you've been incredibly generous with your time and knowledge. Thank you very much. I want to give you the last word. If there's anything we left out of this interview that just has to be said, now's your chance. And also, please give everybody your contact info. So if they want to learn more about your book, about your herbs, they can do that.
1: We've talked a lot about the future and Interesting research going on in the microbiome and in the immune system, but, but you really don't have to wait for the future to embrace your recovery. Uh, you know, the, the, the nature's already figured it out. Just embracing what is natural for us and incorporating herbal therapy uh, is, just has such an extraordinary value in healing. Uh, it takes time. Uh, healing takes time. I tell everybody patience and persistence. Um, but uh, I've outlined a lot of that in my book. I, a lot of people have found it to be a valuable resource. And um, so the book, uh, Unlocking Lyme, is available on, on Amazon and also our website, RawlsMD. Uh, it's available there, RawlsMD.com. And then we have another website, Uh, that we do programs and supplements um, for uh, just uh, supporting that whole supporting immune function primarily uh, called vitalplan.com. So thank you very much for having me. It's been a real pleasure.
0: Always wonderful to speak with you.
1: Yeah, thank you.
0: This is the part of the podcast where Aurora and I have a conversation about the interview. But since Aurora is not here, she's not back from Japan and Korea yet, we're not going to do that. So instead, we'll just wrap this up. If you like what we're doing here at Lime Ninja Radio, share this interview with a friend. If you really like what we're doing, head on over to iTunes and leave us a review. And if you really, really, really like what we're doing, consider becoming a Lime Ninja patron. Just head on over to our new homepage, that's LimeNinjaRadio.com, and look for the Patreon link. If you have some feedback for us, good, bad, ugly, we want to hear it all. We read it all, and we try to respond to as many emails as we can. Just send us an email to feedback at LimeNinjaRadio.com. And last, as you longtime Lime Ninjas know, this podcast would not be complete unless we left you with the Lime Ninja fact of the day. Did you know a ninja can set water on fire? They can also set fire on water.